0: welcome to hey great shot you're listening to the great shot podcast a crack rackets and tennis channel podcast network production my name is alex gruskin Joining us on the show is a player who was a part of, I will say it, the greatest generation of American male tennis players coming up in the nineteen eighties, alongside of names like Pete Sampras, Michael Chang, Andre Agassi, Jim Courier, and so many more. He then went on to the University of Michigan, where he achieved all American status in three different seasons, as well as being named the nineteen ninety-two Big Ten men's tennis player of the year. Of course, now he serves as the coach for two of the most successful. Successful players to make the transition from college to the professional ranks of the past 10 years in J.J. Wolf and Mikhail Torpegard. Of course, I am talking about Cass Tennis's David Cass, who joins our show today to talk about all of those things and so much more. We get to explore what the culture was around American men's tennis in the 1980s, what it's like to grow up as a part of a cohort that sees players go on to become some of the game's greatest champions in history, again, guys like Sampras and Agassiz and courier, what it's like to see them up front to participate and, you know, play against them, to practice against them. And again, what that culture was like, I also asked David, I know he went off to Boletaria Academy as it was called uh, in the 1980s and what that decision was like for him to be separated from his family, to be focusing on tennis uh, so heavily, so early in his lifetime. And, you know, what that did for him, you know, what he learned from those experiences moving forward and how they influenced him as a coach now. We talk about all of those things and so much more. It's such a delight to get to talk to David. Of course, as a fellow University of Michigan Wolverine, I will always show respect, go and kiss the rings of those All-Americans who built my favorite tennis program. But, you know, David, just so much expertise on so many different topics. It's a really enjoyable story, that, uh, in, enjoyable story and enjoyable conversation that I think all of you listeners are going to enjoy. Of course, the reason we are able to have these sorts of conversations on our Great Shot podcast is because of the support we get from our friends at DraftKings and as we repeatedly mention on our Crack Rackets podcast tennis is maybe the only sport that sees action 24-7 365 days a year now no that is not the case right now but when tennis is going full steam it's the only sport that's taking place across the globe and where fans are consistently treated to spectacular play day in day out we do our best here at Crack Rackets to break down all of the results, analyze the game's emerging trends, and offer accurate predictions of what we think will happen next. That being said, as fun as it is to watch the sport and break down each match, we're all still tennis players at heart. And as such, we all want a piece of the action. That's why we at Crack Rackets are thrilled to announce our partnership with DraftKings. We know listeners of this podcast are the most informed tennis fans in the business. But what's the point of all that knowledge if you can't take advantage of it? That's why we think it's time for you To bet on tennis, and thanks to our partnership with DraftKings, all new users can get a racket-cracking sign-up bonus of up to one thousand dollars by signing up with DraftKings right now. Here's how it works: You're going to create your DraftKings sportsbook account and make a deposit. DraftKings will match your first deposit at twenty percent, up to five hundred dollars. After that, you're going to want to make your first bet. And folks, I know there's not ATP, ITA, or ITF, WTA action going on right now, uh, but there are a lot of of exhibition matches that are available to be bet on. Of course, the 2 Tour in Serbia, Novak Djokovic's event is about to begin the UTS uh, Universal Tennis Showdown at Patrick Morteluz Academy and so many other exhibition events across the globe going on. There's still action for us to all get in on, and so of course you can do that by going to DraftKings, finding those matches, those combos that are right for you, and then you're going to make your first bet. And DraftKings will also match that with a risk-free bet of up to $500. For all of that, just go to dkng.co slash rackets to play. That's dkngco dot co slash cracking rackets. Again, act quickly before this offer ends. Have a gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in New Jersey, West Virginia, or Pennsylvania, or 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. You must be 21 years or older to participate and must be in a participating state as well. And remember, unless you want us to chirp right back at you, Please don't be that fan that yells on social media at a player if your bet doesn't hit. No one likes that person. It's the equivalent of unnecessarily hooking your opponent, and no one will want to associate with you after that. But remember, you can get in on all of the action by going to dkng.co slash cracking rackets. All right, with that being said, let's get to my conversation with former Big Ten Men's Tennis Player of the Year, David Cass. the show today is a man who is a Buckeye by trade now, but a Wolverine by his heart. He was the 1992 Big Ten Men's Tennis Player of the Year, a third place finisher in the 1985 Boys 16s Kalamazoo Tournament, and the man behind Cass Tennis. David Cass, welcome to the show. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great. Thank you, Alex. Thanks for having me.
0: Oh, it is absolutely my pleasure to have you. And again, anytime we have a fellow Wolverine on the phone, even if nowadays his work is mostly to the benefit of the Buckeyes, it will always be a pleasure for me to honor a Wolverine All-American. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah, just next time again, the next J.J. Wolf that's coming up the pipeline that you're working with, just shoot me a text and I'll start working on him. I don't think there's anything illegal about that.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, um... Fortunately, I don't make those decisions for the uh, high school kids where they're going to college. But uh, I love uh, both Ohio State and Michigan and their coaches. And uh, you know, JJ uh, obviously for him made a good decision.
0: That was a very well media trained answer. Clearly the Michigan media department back in the day uh, they could do the job and yeah we could leave that there but for our listeners who don't know about you uh, who aren't maybe as steeped in Michigan tennis history as I am uh, can you tell our listeners a little bit about how you got started with the game of tennis and you know why it stayed a part of your life for so long? Sure Um, my
1: father played
0: uh, recreationally as an adult and got my brother uh,
1: Jonathan who was four years older than me uh, into tennis and he became quite a good player junior player and so by the time I was four I had a mini kind of tennis racket and was hitting balls into the kitchen cabinets um, until my parents got fed up with that and put a backboard out uh, in our backyard so I uh, hit a lot of balls on the wall and the backboard um, as, as a young child and Eventually, he started getting dropped off at the courts with my brother, uh, just trying to find games and people to hit with.
0: How quickly were you beating your brother? Well, the only time we actually
1: played in a match uh, was in the 12 and unders uh, Columbus JC tournament um, when I was eight and he was 12. And he beat me 6-0, 6-1. Uh, he, I, I believe my parents told him at some point in the second set he had to give me a game. Um, but he was running me into the wall with a slice serve. So he, he had, uh, no mercy at all. And unfortunately, uh, after a very good 12s and 14s career and winning the, uh, state high school, Ohio boys tennis championship singles as a freshman, he retired from tennis. So I, I never <laughs> had another shot at him.
0: Yeah, no, one of the great ones who ended his career far too soon. Uh, no denying that. But, you know, I grew up with an older brother who played tennis as well. And, you know, I feel like I'm obligated to say this on the off chance he's listening. I know once I beat him my sophomore year of high school, he was a senior. I haven't lost to him since. Um, but just having a brother uh, who also played the sport for me, it definitely drove my interest in the game, knowing that I wanted to go hit with him and his friends to be included on the court with them. And, you know, tennis was always always something that we could easily talk. And so they would include me in the conversations about those sorts of things. Uh, did you have a similar experience? And again, and now that you are coaching young players, I, I do think that family aspect, the community part of tennis is such a valuable portion of the game. Uh, would you, You know, is that a valid point in your opinion?
1: Yeah, definitely. For me, um, you know, I looked up to my older brother and um, wanted to do what he was doing. And Uh, He was doing great and kind of drove me and pushed me to uh, do well uh, on my own. So I think it made a huge impact.
0: Mm-hmm. And I know for you, again, you think about that time growing up and what American tennis culture was like in those days. That's the peak era of John McEnroe, who was as famous as any athlete in the country, tennis or not. And, you know, for you, I know uh, you eventually moved down to IMG to train full time, or I think at the time it was just called Voluntary Tennis Academy. Um, but, you know, what was the culture around junior tennis in the 1980s? Was it as similar to the tournament chasing? sort of, uh, I suppose, philosophy that it is now?
1: Um, no, I don't think it was. Um, at least, um, you know, I may be a little biased because, like you said, I mean, the tennis was so big back then, and, you know, my particular junior tennis age group was um, so unique, uh, which I'm sure we'll get into, um, but, the, you know, we, we really didn't play as many tournaments. I remember uh, the four, there were four big national tournaments at the time. Uh, and there was the Orange Ball and the Easter Ball, and maybe a couple others, but I feel like we played maybe eight, nine, maybe 10, 11 tournaments at the most in a year. And, you know, there was no ITF rankings, um, and there wasn't kind of level one, level two, level three systems. And so it, it just was a little more um, plain vanilla and, and basic and less scheduled. And, I mean, rankings mattered, but I, I, I think we would get the rankings issued once a year like in the mail you'd, you know you'd get it in the mail <laughs> you know so it wasn't one of those things that you were kind of constantly checking and seeing how many points you had because to be honest I, I don't even know how they did it like in terms of because there wasn't points so it was just some type of you had a number next to your name when the rankings came out
0: Mm-hmm. No, I again. This probably tells listeners more about me and my personality, and you know why to this day I remain single. But I would always ask my <laughs> tennis coaches and say, "Hey, um, you know, should, you know, what was it for?" It was always Ed Nagel, who you know, fellow Wolverine. I'd be like, "Well, what were you doing this? And what was this tournament like? And tell me about the 1982 Easter Bowl." And let me tell you, he would share the stories. But he once brought in because I think his it was saved at his parents' house one of those mailed in lists of the rankings, and I think he was at like number eight. in In the country, and I remember just looking at at it and being like, "This is amazing." If I got only (laughs) one of these, like every month, I would be on pins and needles waiting for it to arrive. And so, yeah, you know, in terms of specialization in sports, that's obviously more prevalent now than it was then. But did you start focusing on tennis, you know, as your main sport pretty early on?
1: I did. I did. Um, You know, I did play quite a few other sports more in the neighborhood with the guys. Uh, Played some little league baseball. Uh, a lot of pickup basketball, but really, um, in terms of formalized, uh, sports, tennis was, uh, the main thing from a pretty early age on.
0: You strike me as a three and D sort of small forward.
1: (laughs) Uh, my, my game was, uh, unusual. I, uh, I I like to get to the basket, but I also had some Adrian Dantley, uh, back down (laughs) in me, which if you, uh, being a Michigan guy, you may know what that means.
0: You practice at the U of M varsity tennis center. There's a photo of David Cass on the wall that you have to look at each and every day. So believe me, I'm, <laughs> I'm well acquainted, I suppose, with that photo. But, you know, again, uh, in getting back to your role as a coach now and reflecting on your, you know, juniors and how, what the philosophies were back at then, do you think it is easier or more difficult for a player now to ascend the rankings and, you know, develop to reach the top? of the men's game?
1: Um, unquestionably harder today uh, than it was then. Um, you know, the the international nature and growth uh, of the sport over the last, you know, 20, 25 years um, has made it uh, extremely difficult. I mean, I uh, I tell people all the time, I mean, making, um, you know, kind of the top 100, which is the metric I think we a lot of us use, right, to make it in men's tennis. Um, you know, you're competing with you know, I, I think there might be 70 countries that have a player in the top 200 in men's tennis. I mean, literally 70 countries that, you know, range, the players range in age from 18 to 40. So you're, you're dealing with 22 years of age groups from 70 countries fighting for 100 spots. Um, so when you kind of look at the math that way, um, which is kind of how I look at things, it, it's just one of the most difficult things to achieve uh, in sports, in my opinion.
0: Mm-hmm. No, I, I completely agree with that, and you talked about the travel that it now takes for these ITF events. You go play the Easter Bowl, the Orange Bowl, but then you go down to South America, Central America, play things like the Banana Bowl, or you go to Australia or Asia, Europe, for all of these different stretches, and you're competing with a far more international uh, group of players, and, you know, that's why, again, I think we see more and more... Uh, player, or we see players continue to get better and better because we do have a wider, uh, talent pool now to draw from. Um, but again, getting back to your experience, it it was a loaded, uh, class of American players during the 1980s. And of course for you, you were at IMG at a time when, uh, you know, the big names, Andre Agassi, Jim Courier, but then of course yourself and guys like Martin Blackman and, you know, Monica Sellis is there at that time as well. Uh, what led you to head down, uh, to Boletari at that time and just what is life like when you're training there with that group of players? Um,
1: yeah I mean funny story I really hadn't even heard of Boletari's believe it or not um, in uh, the summer of um, I guess it would have been 83 and um, another Michigan guy Aaron Crickstein who I know you familiar know with um, mm-hmm. was a very good friend of my, bro- my older brothers they were the same age and played together and Aaron um, was a little bit immature back then and for his age and and preferred to hang out with me. Um, so he invited me. Uh, that was the year he won Kalamazoo. And he and his family invited me to go to the U.S. Open with him. And that was the year he broke through and beat, beat his chairlitis and made the round of 16 at 16 years old. And it was just all the most incredible thing I'd ever seen in my life. And he had decided right about then he was going down to Boletaris, uh to start the school year, his junior year, and said hey you should come why don't you go down there and train and at that point after being in that environment with him i would have probably done anything he suggested um and that was (laughs) and that was literally uh, how it happened uh just out of nowhere and then there i was in starting eighth grade at 13 years old uh down in bradenton florida
0: Mm -hmm. how what's the training like down there was it all day every day well, we went to school uh, in the mornings. Um, we had
1: a uh, there were two schools, Bradenton Academy and Saint Stephen's. Um, it was quite a high school battle when the two played each other, as you can imagine. Um, and and uh, I went to Bradenton Academy, and we went to school from about eight to twelve, and came back, uh, had a quick lunch, and played from about one to five uh, p.m. and then did fitness, um, and then you know had dinner study kind of table and uh lights out pretty early back then it was uh it was a very strict tough uh, tough place back in those days
0: Mm-hmm. And for you to be there, you know, ages 13, 14, 15, 16, you know, looking back on that, what what do you reflect during those years? Do you think you missed some, you know, if you could look back, you would have maybe preferred being in public school or just having a non-tennis, ordinary, I suppose, uh, teenage years? Or do you, you know, look back and value those IMG years, getting to train? I keep calling it IMG, those voluntary years and getting to train there.
1: Yeah. Well, it transitioned from Boletaries to IMG uh, before my senior year, which is kind of another story we'll maybe get to later. Um, but (laughs) in, in terms of, uh, in terms of, uh, that, um, I mean, the, I I think 13, um, I have kids uh, that are 15 to 13. And as I kind of think about that age and them being away at a place like that, um, I, I, uh, can't even imagine it. So, um, I think it was too young personally for me at that age. Um, remember this was before computers and cell phones and anything else. So when you're down there, you're really on your own. Um, you know, I think there was a payphone you could call home Sunday nights and um and, and that was kind of it. So I think for me it was a little too young. Um but I think uh there's good and bad that comes out of it. I mean, obviously you learn how to be more self sufficient at a young age. Um, you toughen up because um, you know I tell people all the time you know no nobody down there um, and this isn't a knock it's just the way it is nobody down there really cared about your happiness right so um, you know no you had 25 30 year old guys working there probably underpaid and they, they really weren't there to make sure 14 year old kids were, were real happy so it was a tough strict place and um, you grew up fast and um, again positives came out of that but definitely a miss I think, Uh, You miss family uh, life, more normalcies, traditional family life, traditional schooling, um, and and some of those social aspects. But um, I did meet some, uh, you know, some of my best friends in the world still today down there. Um, So I wouldn't I don't think I'd trade it, but I also wouldn't really recommend it uh, to anyone today for their kids that are that age, 13, 14.
0: Yeah, no, it's a fascinating perspective because, yeah, I, I can only imagine the differences when you're 13, 14, 15, you're living in that moment, right? And you're just enjoying being on the court all the time or at least trying to enjoy that and you get so swept up in the competition of it all. Um, I can, you know, I, I imagine reflecting on that now, yeah, there would have been, it probably would have been nice to have maybe a slightly better balance. Now, if it was an off weekend, you're home in Bradenton. I have to ask, where are you sneaking off to, Siesta Key or Long Beach? Oh, longboat, excuse me.
1: Uh we were sneaking off if anywhere to the 711 uh down, <laughs> you know, a couple blocks away to get some uh powdered uh donuts and maybe an orange juice.
0: <laughs> maybe an orange juice, that's the splurging. Mm-hmm. That
1: was about yeah. that was about it they did. They would take us to the malls on Saturday night um and we'd see a movie and walk around the mall and that was that was really the social experience, but as you can imagine we uh we found our way into some trouble down there um, as teenage kids uh, would do uh, that are living without their parents.
0: Yeah, of course, and as I mentioned that generation, your class of players really was Blackman, Courier, Agassiz, yourself, a couple of others as well. Uh, how exceptional was the level of tennis? What was it like practicing in that you know cohort having peers at that level to push you each and every day?
1: Yeah, it was insane. I mean, we uh, we still talk about um, some of those challenge matches and three out of five set matches on the back ten. We called it um, out <laughs> out in the sun, just blazing heat, um, shirts off, not not doing great things for our skin later in life. Uh, <laughs> and and uh, it was it was there were battles, and it, it certainly hardened uh, everybody. And um, I think I think Jim and Andre and those guys who turned out to to really do great things would would tell you that those years and those, those practice matches and training sessions down there really had a lot to do with it.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I think you're selling yourself short because in 1985, it was a 14-seeded David Cass who advanced further than Andre Agassi and, in fact, beat him. Uh, he advanced further than number three-seeded Jim Courier and ended up coming in third place beating Martin Blackman in that Kalamazoo event. I feel like you were having some pretty good results as well.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, uh, the claim to fame of my uh, junior career uh, were some wins over those guys, Uh between about twelve and sixteen, so that uh definitely was the highlight.
0: hmm Did you feel additional pressure going to those events knowing that, you know, you're so ingrained in the sport of tennis, you go home and it's not like you're going back to your house, it's you're going back to IMG and you're seeing the guys you just competed against.
1: Oh yeah, I mean it was it was uh crazy. I mean, like for instance, I remember I think it was the fourteens or 16's Easter ball maybe out in Arizona. Uh, I played Andre and Martin both in the semifinals and finals. And I think my mother was the chaperone who flew all three of us back to Bradenton from there uh, <laughs> together, you know, and uh, some sometimes uh, um, there was some tension there following some of those matches.
0: Oh, I can only imagine. And life on the road at that age, we sort of touched on it earlier. But, you know, again, do you look fondly at those moments just being out there at tournaments, hanging out with the people you're traveling again with week in, week out?
1: Yeah, I do. I mean, from a social perspective and and just from my looking back at my life, uh, I I do look back fondly. Uh like I said, I'm still in touch with a lot of those guys and really close uh friends. Um so I mean, those were some of the best times of our lives we had together. Um what I what I don't look back super fondly on was the intensity of the pressure at that age. Um and not not so much from the standpoint of um that uh, it was so difficult but I think that it sets the wrong tone for what uh, for me anyway it set the wrong tone for what really was important in tennis and 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 what kind of made you focus more on the results than on the process and getting better um, you know I won the 12 and under orange ball actually played, beat Martin in the finals and so when you're winning tournaments at that age like that uh, winning becomes very important and you think you're really good and you, you, for me anyway I listened a little too little I didn't listen enough um, and I focused too much on the winning and and the pressure and so uh, it really for me slowed my game and career down I think later in the game and in even college and and the little bit of pro tennis I played um, but uh, you know it, it so I look back on on that piece of it with not as fond of memories but uh, uh, again all in all I wouldn't trade anything.
0: Mm-hmm. And when you are speaking and working with guys like J.J. J. Wolf and Torpegard now, who obviously had you know immense amounts of success at the college level, and now they're transitioning to the program, uh, how do your own personal experiences through the juniors, through college, through the professional ranks, you know, inform the way you uh, your informally your coaching philosophies with them?
1: Well, I uh, like I told uh, told someone it's pretty easy. I just pretty much tell him to do the opposite of what I did on and off the court. Um, and uh, I really I kind of mean that because I, I I worked hard on the court uh, always, but I um, let's just say I like to have fun as well off the court and didn't probably maximize um, you know the the potential or talent I had because of it. Um, and then, like I said on the court, I think my my style and and game uh, was was focused too much uh, on winning early, which, kind of curbed some of the growth. So I try and really uh, focus on the long-term with the guys. Uh, I started working with JJ when he was, I think, 15, and um, he was pretty results-focused and, um, you know, just really trying to continue to tell him and the others um, that, hey, let's just get the game better. Once everything's better in your game, uh, you're going to do plenty of winning. Um, So I think uh, that and just trying to really – make all the right decisions off the court whether it's fitness nutrition um you know all all the little things really do add up as i know you hear on this show all the time
0: (laughs) yeah that is not something we are afraid to talk about here at crack Rackets. i definitely will agree with you there um i don't know if you look back at that time because again there's so many great players agassi sampras chang all around your age group if i would have told you that al parker would have become a 10-time grand slam champion would you have believed that in 1987
1: in 1987, um, I definitely would have believed it in like 84, <laughs> 85. Um, trying to think about 87 and, and Big Al, uh, probably I probably would have believed it. He was a, a legend beyond belief.
0: Yeah, no. Wherever I look at all of these old results, all I see are just Al, Al Parker's name appears everywhere, and so I'm just I'm fascinated. I'm like, what What did this guy not have?
1: <laughs> he was a great player, great and uh, yeah, great guy, great player.
0: Mm-hmm, certainly. And again, you look through that generation of players. So many went directly to the pro circuit right after their junior results. I was looking through uh, those, I think it was the 87, 88 Kalamazoo draws. Didn't see your name in there. Curious what that was about. And then also, obviously, you end up making the decision uh, to go to the University of Michigan. You end up going to college for four years. You know, what drove that decision in at that time in your life? Was that, uh, you know, more about the tennis, more about the off-the-court development? Why was college the right path for you?
1: Yeah, well, let me touch on the first part of that. First of all, I commend <laughs> you on your research because um, it's funny. Uh, in, in all these years since then, I, I think I, I don't think I've ever been asked that question. Uh, and only a few of my really close tennis friends uh, from that era kind of know the stories. But um, yeah, I kind of fell off the face of uh, the tennis earth there for a little bit. Um, and I alluded earlier to maybe not all the best, uh, off court decisions. Um, so I think you can maybe add, add those things together and, uh, come <laughs> up with why I was, uh, not in the, uh, in the draw. I, I will say this though, the 87, uh, draw, that would be correct. Uh, 88, I actually, um, uh, was planning on playing, but had injury, um, right before it. Uh, so I, I didn't play, uh, But in terms of um, what led me to college, so uh, after my um, freshman year of college or of high school, I moved back to Columbus um, and had some, you know, let's call it turmoil in in the family life and and my life for a couple of years where I wasn't really dialed in on the tennis. Um, And I got a call uh, the summer before my senior year from actually Nick Bolateri. And he said, uh, you know, David, you know, we need you to come down here for your senior year. IMG, IMG's uh, invested in us, and we're putting together a traveling team, and it's going to be all the best seniors uh, in high school, and IMG's going to pay for them to be on a traveling team and play on the pro tour for a year so that they, they can tell how good they are and if they're ready to turn pro so when they have to make that decision, they've actually had experience playing against pros and they can make a better decision. And I, I was fortunately smart enough to say yes to that, um, and uh, ended up back down in Bradenton, um, and was on that team traveling with you know guys like Career uh, and Mark Knowles and Doug Flack and some of my real close friends, and um, had a kind of got me back into tennis, started playing well again. Actually had a good year. Um, was thinking about turning pro, um, and then in February, I believe um i was playing an exhibition match against a guy who was a year younger than me named pete sampras and um and i and i tore my knee up and i ended up getting surgery in the spring and was out for a few months and kind of thought to myself maybe i had to go to college um and so really at that point um i had met i had gone to a michigan tennis camp uh when i was about 13 uh in the summer uh, a friend from Columbus actually played for Michigan, I don't know if you'll know this name, John Royer, um, <laughs> but he took me to um, Coach Eisner's camp uh, when I was young, met Coach Eisner, and I had a relationship and, with him and liked him, and when I decided to go to college, um, I looked at a few other places, but he did a good job recruiting me and uh, stayed interested in me, even when uh, I was kind of not fully focused on tennis. Um, and ended up choosing uh, to go to school there.
0: Mm-hmm. No, the only reason I know John Royer's name, again, is because I spent way too much time pestering Ed Nagel over the years. And so I've heard all about 87 and 88. And obviously in 88, that Michigan team came in third place at NCAAs or tied for third back then. And, you know, they lost in the semis. I think it was 5-4 to LSU. How a team with Dan Goldberg, Mal Washington, and Ed Nagel, and guys like John Morris and just, you know, I think uh, there was one more guy who might have been in the 2020 John, club John Royer. that year. Yeah, and John Royer is the other one, and how that team doesn't win an NCAA title still angers me to this day, even <laughs> though I was, and I'm doing the math here, I was, I think, negative eight, <laughs> negative seven. You know, I was born in 95, so not even in the picture yet, but, um, you know, for you, again, going to Michigan, the uh, just that college tennis route, and, you know, I'm sure head coach Brian Eisner, who had been at Michigan for so long and had so much success at the time period, how much did that factor into your decision as well? well uh, as you know choosing Michigan and when you're working with players how much do you stress being comfortable with the coach as something that they should consider when making their college decision
1: yeah well coach Eisner um, was someone I really liked and um, you know like I said he recruited me hard and he was a big reason um, why I went to school there probably the biggest reason Um, you know I knew uh, Mal pretty well uh, because he was just one year ahead of me in the juniors and from the Midwest so we we played a lot against each other growing up our whole lives. And so I was comfortable with him uh, and a few other guys on the team I knew. And uh, that was, that was probably the reason I landed there. And like you said, I mean, Michigan was very dominant in the Midwest and one of the best programs in the country at the time. So, um, you know, it was, felt like the right choice Um, in terms of helping the kids uh, make those decisions that I work with. um, Absolutely. I mean, if, if you don't have a coach that you, you trust and feel like they can help grow your game and help grow you as a human being then it's it 's not the right fit for you, so I think it's a the coach will always be a big uh factor in in that decision
0: mm-hmm. Do you live in South Quad? I lived in west quad West Quad that makes sense. You were an athlete, and what the tennis player the tennis courts were at the track building at the time, right the indoor track and tennis building it was something. Okay. Yeah, that is, cr- I, I, you know, running laps around the track, right? That's the warm-up?
1: That was the warm-up, and then, you know, I don't know if you know this, but, um, you know, some of the uh, long jump pit uh, covering the um, sand was actually in the court, in one of the tennis courts. And so when you're running on all the rubber and then you step on the wood in the middle of a point, um, <laughs> it, it, uh, it was some, some experience. And actually, I think that's why uh, we had to stop playing matches in there because... Uh, an old friend who played for Northwestern, Giora Pays, uh, I think broke his ankle on that spot in a dual match. And that was the end of, uh, of the track and tennis building for uh, collegiate matches.
0: Yeah, no, and the Varsity Tennis Center now shines beautifully there today. Uh, and obviously, you know, as someone who played club tennis, that's where all of our practices were. And so, big fan of the Varsity Tennis Center. But, uh, you know, for you guys, let, let's get into that college career. That 89 season, you joined a team. Uh, Malvey Washington, I think, is player of the year that year in college. Dan Goldberg was an NCAA finalist uh, in 87. I think he's a senior that season, so he's obviously quite the player as well. You jump on that roster. Uh, you guys. I believe go 15 and 10, not the best, you know, three wins to start your season, but I thought, I think you lost like six in a row and nine out of 10, something crazy. And then you run the table through the big 10 season until you play Minnesota. Would you say that match more than any might be the one you regret from your college time?
1: Uh, yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Um, you found, you found it. Um, that, that, <laughs> that was it. We were, we were definitely the best team, but, um, one of our top players, uh, had an injury. Um, that uh, but tried to play through the best he could Um, but he he just couldn't do enough with uh, his condition he was in and that was that was the difference.
0: Mm-hmm. And joining you know, that sophomore year, Mal Washington, who you know obviously goes on to have quite a bit of pro success in Dan at that time. How high was the level of play in college tennis during that stretch? Because you have a bunch of guys, right? Like Todd Martin comes out during that time period. He was a Northwestern guy. Um, you, know, you can point to you know, guys like David Wheaton or I, how many times have I heard the Paul Harhoose story or Buff Farrow. You can go on and on and on. There's a <laughs> lot of talented players during that college uh, stretch during college.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, David Wheaton was one year ahead of us. and You know, Todd Martin was actually my year, 1970. He's another name. He wasn't as good of a junior, but he was, um, you know, that same that year with us. And um, so, yeah, I mean, the level in college was uh, was crazy. I mean, you had there I I wouldn't that year. I bet there were at least 15 players that ended up um, top 100 in the world and half to half dozen that either won a grand slam singles or doubles or you know it's finaled i mean it's crazy
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, for you, obviously, you go on to have a bunch of individual success in college as well. I think you're currently tied for fourth in all time singles wins for the Michigan men's tennis team program history. Uh, as we mentioned, player of the year in 92. And you, as you said, you went on and played a year of pro tennis, but ultimately you decided to step away from the game for a little bit. Uh, what led to that decision for you? And then ultimately, why did you end up deciding to come back uh, in a coaching capacity?
1: well i played on the tour for about 15 months and um got off to actually a pretty good start um and then had a number of injuries uh and just was struggling to come back from it and mentally um i really just had um kind of lost the uh the love of of competing um for for a little bit and i that's when i decided um you know it's probably time to start start the next phase of my life. And, um, you know, I stepped, I actually uh, for about six to 12 months coached a a professional woman that was from Columbus named Ann Grossman. Um, And, and so I did that for a little bit uh, before I got it started my business uh, life and um, spent 15 years kind of growing through the business um, world and, and, uh, you know, really learned a lot about myself and, learned some better leadership skills and learned about life and kind of missed the, started missing the sport. And, um, uh, at about that time, um, uh, a younger kid from Columbus who I had known since he was little, Chase Buchanan, um, had asked me if I would kind of come back and help him a little bit. And that was, that kind of all coincided at about the same time, maybe 10 years ago. And, uh, since I started helping Chase, um, I've been, pretty active in in helping kids around here and um, continue to do so.
0: Yeah. And uh, getting back into coaching, have you found that competitive spirit back again? Have you, you know, do you enjoy, I always say there's nothing more stressful than watching a tennis match. You feel like you have a stake in it. You know, playing is easy. You don't think about any of that other stuff. But when I watch my little brother play, I, you know, I can't sit down. I fidget. I want to stab things when he's not doing what I think he should be. Or when he does, I'm too elated and I have to be like, calm down. Um, Have you found that competitive spirit again in coaching?
1: Yeah, I think I definitely have, and um, you know, during that 15 years I was away from it, you know, I had my kids and um, coached their, their youth sports quite a bit, and kind of got a um, kind of back into the, the sports and competition, and really was enjoying it, loving the experience, and uh, you know, wanted to give back, and felt like um, I could be helpful to kids who were kind of going through similar phases that I was at their age uh, during their teenage years, and. Hopefully, help them make uh, some good decisions uh, for for their careers.
0: Mm-hmm. So, with that in mind, tell me a little bit about cast tennis and some of the players you've been working with, and you know what you are hoping to do with uh, again through your coaching career.
1: Well, currently um, working full time with um, you know two two male professional players, uh, JJ Wolf and uh, Mikhail Torpegard, um, and on the women's side, uh, a young. A woman named Katrina Scott um, who is spending most of her time here in Columbus training. She turned professional um, uh, I think late last year and is actually turning 16 this week. Um, She has a great career ahead of her. Uh, Additionally we work with uh, local players um, you know that that come in and practice uh, some more than others but I'd say another handful five six kids are working with us uh, at various times and you know, it's 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 fun and challenging, and um, you know certainly the guys' game and the girls' game present uh, different challenges. Um, but it's kind of fun to to do both, and um, you know, fun to see the growth uh, from the players.
0: Mm -hmm. For you in particular, I'm sure watching JJ this past, what, year and a half, maybe two-year stretch where he dominates college tennis and then he goes on, I think he's won, what, four challengers over the past 15 months, something crazy like that. Um, That's had to have been a fun ride for you. Was it something you expected to happen, you know, this sort of success to this degree this quickly? Um, I don't think you ever expect it, um, because it's just so difficult, uh, as you know.
1: Um, but you know, JJ has, has always had a lot of talent, um, and he's always had a lot of good things going for him. Um, but you know, it's, uh, it's been a process for, like I said, about five years now, and it it, it was extremely gratifying to see a lot of the things we've been working on for a long time, kind of finally come together and click, um, and have him, uh, really take off and, and see the success he's having he's um he's worked extremely hard uh you know since since we've worked together and uh you know has has tremendous potential so it's great to see him uh, tapping into that and uh moving in the right direction
0: yeah, and, you know, I'll be generous and say he's six foot max, you know, six feet tall. And you know, again, I think that's a little bit generous. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, but <laughs> for, for JJ to, you know, for a player of, of that size to be able to produce the sort of power he can off of both wings from the ground with his serve as well, I mean, the thing that stands out the most, that forehand, the contact point when he steps into it and hits it cleanly, I mean, it's an elite stroke regardless of the level of play, uh, you know, regardless. Of the competition, you want whoever you want to compare it to, and so you know we we've, we've talked about this, I suppose, off mic. But uh, you know that lower body strength that JJ has, how important will that be throughout his career? How translatable will that be as he you know continues to ascend the ATP game?
1: Well, it's huge, and uh, for him, I think it's everything. Um, you know, he doesn't have the height, the six foot three, six foot four height that a ton of the players in the top hundred have. Um, but he does have incredible lower body strength and, and, uh, stability and power. And so, um, you know, the biggest challenge uh, for him is, is just making sure he's using that every, every shot, every point, every, every set, every match. Cause when he, when he does, he's, um, he's extremely difficult to beat. Um, when, you know, but it's, it's hard work to be that physical all the time, uh, throughout the points and, and matches. And so, um, that's something he's worked hard at getting better at and, um, I think that his success in the last 18 months has uh, been largely uh, uh, correlated to his ability to do that
0: better. Mm-hmm. And this is a question I've asked many people around the game, but you sort of refer to the, the height and you know physicality now. Uh, it's more it, there's been a premium put on it more now, maybe than ever in professional tennis. And you you can list guys Virev and hatchinov and Tsitsipas and Opelka, obviously the extreme example. But so many of these young up and coming players, Hubie Hercatch, another guy you can point to as well. They're all six foot four or taller, and they just seem physically capable of moving in a way at that size uh, that players weren't able to earlier in their career and so again you look at a guy like JJ who physically can hit the ball as hard as any of them right tactically the way he plays his game he can execute as well as any of them but do you think that physicality just given the nature of professional tennis will that be a barrier to players moving forward and to you know reach the top 10 of the game because certainly you know regardless JJ Top fifty. I don't think that's out of the question, given his progress. Not to let him get a big head, but you know, um, certainly the results speak for themselves. But do you think there will be a physical barrier almost to the top ten for JJ specifically? Is that the question? Yeah, or just in general, I suppose in the ATP game. Um,
1: I don't. Um, I think that um, it, it's a barrier if you don't have. Um, you know, one of those things, right? So the height and the reach, um, obviously, uh, is tremendously uh, beneficial, but I also think having the power and lower body strength and live arm like JJ has, um, is, is kind of equally beneficial and unique. So, um, I mean, I'm biased obviously, but, uh, I, I don't, I don't really put a ceiling on him. Um, I've seen him on the court, um, you know, playing practice matches against guys in the top 20, 30 in the world. And, um, there, there's definitely, uh, you know, not a lot people can do when he's playing uh, well.
0: Yeah, no, he has that ability to take the ball out of his opponent's hands, and that's certainly a special gift. But you know, the flip side, another guy you work with in Mikhail Torpegard, and a reason I've been such a big fan of his game for so long is you just see it, and you say that's the mod- that's the you know the modern day tennis player in terms of the physical profile, six four, six five, six six, can move really well, powerful first serve, has the ability to play plus one tennis. It just you know, again, I, I suppose that the margin of error being a. Little little bit bigger for guys who can dominate in that sort of way it just almost feels undeniable
1: yeah i think that's true and you know i mean the court is um finite right uh mm-hmm. and like a basketball court so that length um certainly helps and plays a role and um mikhail has a you know strong serve and the reach on the return of serve helps and um you know he's a great player and a great competitor and uh you know i think he's um He's on his way uh, up the rankings as well. I mean, both guys, as as you know, uh, were really hot uh, when things got stopped uh, in early March. Um, you know, I think JJ was twenty one and three or something going into the bat mm-hmm. and and Torp had won, won Cleveland and uh, lost a close one to JJ in Columbus, and you know, beating some really good players. Um, you know, he beat Kizmanovic, uh last year. He's beaten some 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 really good players. So he he's capable of going very far as well.
0: Yeah, right now, JJ Wolf, if you look at the ATP race, I believe, you know, which is the accumulation of how many points they've all had since uh, the start of the season. I believe he's number 42 in the rankings uh, for the 2020 season. You look for Torp, I think he's at like 114. And so, yeah, they have both been uh, right around top 100 players, if not better than that, during this season. And for you, I know, I believe they have both been in Columbus with you for the majority of this quarantine time period. Um, How difficult has it been? To replicate the sort of training, the sort of you know live tennis environment they would be getting from the matches, you know, week in, week out, day in, day out, if they were playing pro pro tour events right now.
1: Um, yeah, it's been hard. I mean, when it first happened, everyone was so disappointed um, to not be able to play Indian Wells and, and you know play the big events coming up in the spring. And so I think with the long um, period that was going to be off, um, the mindset was kind of hey, let's take a step back for a little while um, let's maybe do some fitness and not as much tennis. And so we've kind of gone back and forth on, um, kind of the training regimen over the last two and a half months. And, um, they're, they, they've been playing and training, you know, pretty hard now for, for a good amount of time again, and are both, um, doing a lot of off court, uh, work and, um, pretty committed and, and working hard and, and playing well. I think it's helped that, um, I don't know if you followed at all, but we're part of the, uh, uh, Grand Slam Tours 120 series. Um, so we're playing live matches, uh, live stream exhibition matches in Columbus each week. Um, and we've had a few other players. Tennis Sandgren's been here uh, with us for the last couple weeks uh, training and playing a couple of these matches against JJ and uh, and Torp. And they're playing each other. And so having, having live exhibition matches, two out of three sets, umpire and umpire, uh, live stream, I mean, really is the closest thing you're going to get to real competition. And um, I think it came came at a good time a few weeks ago when they they were ready and needed it. And so, um, you know, all in all, kind of happy with where they're at right now and um, trying to keep them, you know, motivated and ready to play if, if and when the tour starts up again.
0: So do you think, given, again, the necessity of the moment just to get live matches like that, uh, that these exhibitions have been valuable? Because, you know, to a certain degree, you watch these events and you think to yourself, yeah, these players are certainly, you know, giving 90% effort, but it is still an exhibition feel, sort of, right?
1: Um, I I don't get that feeling when I'm at these matches, Uh,
0: and and I don't get it. At least here in
1: Columbus, I can't speak to the other matches, but... I would say that um, the the players I coach um, Katrina and JJ and Torp, uh, and then the players that have uh, joined us, uh, tennis Sandgren and um, you know, some, some other ones on the women's side, they're, they're, um, they're playing it like it's a match. I mean, they want to win. I mean, there's tension. There's um, they're competing uh, after the match. The one uh, player who lost is not happy and, and wanting to talk about their game and work on their game. So, I uh, honestly, um, I I can see why the outside world would expect that. It makes perfect sense. Um, But at least for these guys and this group, um, they're they're taking it seriously because it's kind of the only measuring stick they have right now.
0: Yeah. No, I mean – I'm sure it's different than you expected, and certainly, you know, you look at uh, these exhibition events. It's nice from the fan perspective to just get that sort of tennis, have that sort of action uh, again, be available to us because I know we all sort of miss it. Uh, again, I, I know we, you know, I plan hopefully, if you'll allow me, uh, on having you back on the podcast again. So I don't want to get rid of all of my questions moving forward. But in terms of where we're at at this point, and you know, uh, things still sort. Sort of unclear with uh you know what the health safety guidelines surrounding uh professional tennis do you think we will see pro tennis sanctioned events return during this season
1: i do um i think um it, it sounds to me like there's a very high probability the french open is going to happen um from what at least i'm seeing and hearing um the the tournaments in the united states um the u.s open in particular i think is uh, up in the air um i think we'll learn more in the next few weeks um i don't know uh what it will look like um after the french open if there'll be tournaments um you know at the challenger level or the tour level um but at least what i'm hearing is there's a high probability of at least a few big tournaments uh in europe happening
0: Mm-hmm. if they uh, one of the things I've seen come up recently one of the discussion points is if they play professional events this year should points be awarded for them I'm of the philosophy of no any any events you play this year is just gravy and prize money should remain the same but it's really hard to distinguish ranking you know to distribute ranking points I should say given the condensed nature of the schedule given just how to, out of place everything is uh, again this is a random topic for you but would that be something Something you would object to if they play events this year, but they don't offer points; they keep the rankings points frozen till the resumption of a normal schedule, hopefully in January 2021.
1: I think it would be strange uh, to play tournaments without points, um, you know, for for the guys uh, and, and ladies. But um, no, I, I think at this point the players would probably be happy with with anything, and if there's prize money and they can compete. Um, I don't think it's unreasonable to have that uh, go that route with no points, Um, you know, but I I think there's probably as good of a chance that there will be points um, if they do have tournaments.
0: Yeah, I think there will be. The problem is if you're in a region where, you, you know, things are still flared up and you can't travel, you can't participate in these events, or you have some sort of pre-existing health condition that makes you more at risk and you don't feel comfortable, you know, how, how do we avoid penalizing those players if professional tennis returns, right? That's still a big problem I see out there.
1: Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, and if there really are places that, um, there are restrictions where the players can't, um, travel at all and get to the tournaments, um, and and there's, you know, more than just a few isolated incidents of that, um, then I think you're right. I think it'll be hard to have, I think it'll be hard to have the tournaments, but, um, maybe having them without points, um, you know, is, is the, uh, decision that gets made uh for that reason which uh in that case would be better than not having tournaments and not penalize the players like you're referring to so that could be a good solution
0: yeah no i agree with you there i also think you know that we see people such as Nadal, Djokovic, Federer all speak up over this past week and talk about, you know, they're not sure if they would be willing to play the U.S. Open at this point, certainly Federer, given the arthroscopic knee surgery, which, of course, only Roger Federer can make sound like it's just a routine procedure. (laughs) Don't worry, it's just arthroscopic knee surgery, but I'm Roger Federer, Um, (laughs) that they are all concerned and considering not playing the event that speaks to the climate right now, I suppose, surrounding these major events. Um, Yeah, but no, it's certainly an interesting time to be a professional tennis fan and i suppose my last question i have for you on this note again relating to the players you are working now for jj for torp um what are the things you think that their game you know are necessities to have in your game at this point uh to succeed in tennis in 2020 2021 how has the game changed you know now versus when you were playing in the late 80s early 90s
1: well, the lot's different. I mean, the balls are a little bit different. The court seem
0: quite a bit slower.
1: Um, you know, back back in the, our days, uh, most players were serving, volleying, um, certainly on first serves the majority of the time. Um, so the game styles have changed, much more baseline uh, centric. Um, but with that in mind, um, when you really uh, break it down, and I'm a I'm a big kind of data analytics guy, um, you know, the serve and return are, are really where the differences lie. Um, I'm sure, I don't know if you you follow, you know, O'Shaughnessy or any of his numbers, but I'm a big believer in that. And so, um, I think, you know, continuing to work on the serve and return for these guys, uh, we spend a lot of time doing that and we will always spend a lot of time doing that. And, um, to me, those are the, the main, the main things. And then obviously, uh, putting the work in physically and, um, you know, hitting the ball, but I mean, you know, these guys have, these guys have hit a lot of forehands and backhands in their life. And, um, you know, getting them to, you know, first play first strike tennis and big serve, big first ball, get to the net. Um, I mean, that's kind of what we work on.
0: Again, I say this with all due respect because I'm a big fan of his game, but if I had to practice with JJ every day, I'd be like, dude, like I'm just so sick of your forehand. Like I'm just <laughs> done. Like I'm not hitting with you anymore. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> this isn't fun for me.
1: Yeah, we've we've definitely heard a few comments like that over the years. (laughs) No doubt.
0: Yeah, I bet I bet Torps like do. Actually, see the thing is, Torps backhand's almost uniquely suited to absorb that sort of pace. So he's kind of like, all right, yeah, like I'm enjoying this. Am I wrong?
1: Uh, Torps definitely used to it, and uh, you know you can imagine. I mean, how many times they've uh, played uh, and practiced together here over the last couple years? So they're they know each other's game and they laugh uh, sometimes when, you know, the other one kind of jumps to the right spot, knowing exactly where the other guy's going <laughs> to hit the ball. So. Yeah,
0: it's just like, yeah, I'm sorry, none of your patterns work for me, which almost <laughs> probably helps to a degree. It's like you are forced to improvise. You're forced to do some things outside of your comfort zone. So again, I, I, and like, if I could have a practice partner like that, if I could be that good and just have someone there all times to hit, like I say this before, but if Roger is in the off season, it's like November 28th. He Healthy, it's normal times. Is it? And it's like 4 p.m. on a Thursday and he's just bored. Mm-hmm. Does he text Stan Wavrinka and be like, Yo, Stan, do you want to just hit today? Like, not a certified practice, but just like, Hey, you want to go play a couple groundy games? <laughs> like, when was the last time Roger Federer sent that text?
1: I mean, I would think never, maybe. <laughs> um,
0: would be my guess. <laughs> that's just, I would age for like a 16-year-old him had to actually send like a mail card, like in the letter, a formal invitation. There were no texts at the time. Right. Um, so yeah, no, that's that's what I always wonder about is when do players lose that spark to just go hit for fun? Um, but certainly I'm sure it exists. Anyways, that is a topic for another time. And again, I want to save some of these other topics I have for you later because you know our plan is to bring you back on the show again if you would be so willing. So Dave, Thank you so much, as always, for taking the time to chat with us. Um, And again, for all of our listeners out there who want to learn more about cast tennis, how can they do just that?
1: Um, Right now, um, we uh, are are not um, big on the marketing, so there's not a lot of ways to um, contact us unless you're local here. Um, But uh, um, most people in the tennis community uh, do um, you know, I have contact with either myself or some of the players or our coaches. So, um, I mean, people people know how to get a hold of us if they're interested in uh, coming into practice uh, like, like some of
0: them currently do. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, to all of those in the area, please go check it out because I promise your game will get better. Um, David, again, thank you for taking the time to chat with us today. We look forward to chatting with you again in the near future. Thanks so
1: much, Alex, for having me. And uh, it was a pleasure. Talk to you soon.
0: Yeah, of course. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. Hope all of you enjoyed my conversation with Cass Tennis's David Cass. And for those of you who want to learn more about his academy, and of course who wouldn't because, you know, if the chance to train with someone who has helped shape the games of J.J. Wolf, Mikhail Torbergard, that's a no-brainer, folks. That's what we call a sure thing in this business. You can learn all about it by going to their website, Kate kta-2013.com. Again, kta-2013.com. You can learn about where Cast Tennis is located, the phone number you need to reach them as well. And again, we so look forward to having David on the podcast more frequently. A big thank you to him for taking the time to chat. And we hope all of you listeners enjoyed that as well, because certainly, you know, for me, anytime I get to go back into late 1980s, early 1990s, Michigan Tennis, talk about that generation, of American Tennis as well. Uh, it's a treat, and so we you know, certainly enjoy having him on the podcast. Hopefully all of you listeners, again, enjoyed that conversation as well. Oh, we've been having so many great conversations here at Crack Rackets. Hopefully you listeners have been keeping up to date with all of them on our various podcasts. If 1980s American Tennis is something you are interested I highly recommend you go check out our newest podcast. It's called The Inside Out Podcast. It's our first narrative based show uh, that tells the story of American men's tennis throughout the open era. We go through and name the best American male player throughout each and every season of the open era. You know, guys such as Arthur Ashe, Jimmy Connors, John McEnroe, and, you know, Pete Sampras, Andy Roddick, so many more. Uh, We talk about not only their accomplishments on the court, but their significance to American tennis fans off of it as well. Uh, It's a fantastic series, our first season, and what we are looking forward to having. Uh, Many successful seasons with that Inside Out podcast. So listeners, be sure to go check that out as well. Uh, But also, if you want to hear our more current conversations about what's going on throughout the tennis world right now, go check out our Cracked Interviews podcast. We've had so many great guests from the college tennis scene. People like Andrew Fenty, who, by the way, only person to beat J.J. Wolf during the 2019 college tennis regular season. Go Blue, baby. Uh, We've had him recently. UCLA's Jada Hart, Ashley Leahy from Pepperdine, Alexa Graham, UNC. Elliot Spaziri, Gianni Ross, Brianna Schvets, head coach for Tennessee's men's tennis team, Chris Woodruff, so many more. Uh, of course, ITA CEO Tim Russell, Will Blumberg as well. Uh, so hopefully all of you listeners have listened to that. If you want to hear our conversations and learn more about what's going on in the pro tennis world, from on the players' end, you know, Bethany Maddox Sands, and Monica Pui, and Dennis Kudla, and Mitchell Kruger, Claire Liu, Christiane, of course, and members of the media like Steve Weissman, Mark Lucero, uh, up at rothenburg so many more oh, we've had the privilege to talk to over the past few weeks and months so hopefully all of you listeners have checked those out, and if you haven't, please go like, rate, subscribe, review each of the podcasts, share them with your friends. It takes like ten seconds, folks, and it means the world to us if you do that. So please uh, be sure to go do just that, and you know, go check out our YouTube channel as well. You subscribe; uh, you don't want to miss anything going on right now, whether it be hit and one our series, our video uh, blog series, I should say, following the life of the Vision One men's tennis player Alex Russian. Again, he and I are like two, three letters apart in names. Uh, so always going to support a fellow Alex with an RUS in his name um, and of course we've also got Overserved, we've got CR Classics some of the interviews we've done on video such as BMS and Monica Pui, all of that can be found on the YouTube channel and by the way, shout out to the super producers Max Fligner and Daniel Westoff for the f- of an editing job they do day in day out, we keep them so busy folks, I can't tell you the last time I saw Daniel Westoff sleep now, it might be because usually when he's sleeping I am also sleeping, That's part of, I suppose, what happens when you live in the same house. But I promise you, there's never a moment I'm awake when he is not also awake. And that's just a testament, again, to the hard work that he and Max Flickner do uh, day in, day out. Shout out, again, to the support we get from our friends at Giraffe Kings. There's still tennis going on around the world, folks. And if you want to get in the action, go to dkng.co slash cracking uh to get signed up. Let them know we sent you there. Get some money matched to your first bet, your first deposit as well. Shout out as well to our friends at Aerobar, by the way. Go to Aerobar.com. Use that promo code Cracked15. You will ensure that you have the sort of nutrition you need to get back out on the court. You won't be suffering the sort of acid reflex I am right now because I wolfed down a Milky Way before recording this intro outro for this Great Shot podcast. Uh, So, you know, go check out our friends at Aerobar.com. Use that promo code Cracked15. Get 15% off. And, of course, be on the lookout for their Getting to the Point episodes, our Thursday mini break episode as well. Um, And, of course, we are so excited, again, for... this weekend's inaugural Cracked Rackets open if you're in the Indianapolis area go check out the details for the event come watch it all uh, transpire by going to our website crackedrackets.com of course be on the lookout for content from that event in the near future as well and if you haven't go check out the episodes we did on the mini break with Rajiv Ram and Ronnie Schneider as well so many things to plug folks because we've got a lot going on here at Cracked Rackets we are trying to ensure that all of you fans have that sort of channel you need to if you need to assist Escape from the stresses of day to day life right now because there are so many, uh, you know, escape back into the world of tennis. We want to be that outlet for any of you. So if we've done that for even one of you, we are doing our job here at Cracked. Cracked Rackets but with that being said again for our wonderful guest David Cash for our super producers Max Fligner and Daniel Westoff our friends at DraftKings and AeroBar and from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network I'm your fo- host, I'm your folks I'm your host that shows you where I'm at listeners let's try that one more time, I'm your host Alex Gruskin and you know what we say hey, great shot and we'll see you all next time, thanks everyone